section of the Psalms known as Book 2. There are five separate books within the Psalms, and Psalm 42 begins the first Psalm of that second book. And you may even have in your particular Bible a reference to Book 2 at the very beginning of Psalm 42. It says, to the choir master, a mascal, which is um, probably a musical term of, of some kind uh, in their liturgy of old in Israel, of the sons of Korah, probably not meaning that uh, the entirety of a particular clan, like the sons of Korah, penned this psalm, but that they were involved in arranging this portion of the Psalter and that they had probably some kind of uh, uh, responsibility and involvement in the uh, order of the service that psalms like this would be sung. And we are grateful for their involvement. There are a few other psalms of David that come after Book 1, which is Psalms 1 uh, to 41. So there are a few other psalms of David. This appears not to be a psalm of David. We don't know who the psalmist is here in Psalm 42, but it is one of the most beloved psalms of Christians throughout the ages, and it begins this way. Very famous words, Psalm 42.1, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God, When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival." Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil with me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep, At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands His steadfast love, and at night His song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones... My adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. I've known people even those very close to me and my family, who having missed weeks and even months of corporate worship for several reasons, have nevertheless genuine heartache in not being able to worship with fellow believers. Their hearts become very heavy due to their desire to sing praises to God like we have just done. And their hearts ache when they're not able to sing those songs to the Lord with other believers and be encouraged by those other believers. And their hearts are racked with pain because they miss so terribly the fellowship of hearing God's Word with the saints and seeing and fellowshipping with God's people. And while the reasons for such absences in corporate worship are often due, as I said, maybe to illness or some other circumstance of life or maybe even some other challenging logistical factor that they're not always able to to come 
They aren't seeing it possible to attend public worship, maybe even for an extended season of time. And I've often, as I minister to them, see their frustration in the absence of being able to be with God's people in corporate worship. I remember in Little Rock, Arkansas at one time, being able to sit with a dear lady whose health was not preventing her from driving, her eyesight was, was very, very poor, and yet when I and my little kiddos at the time were going to her place, and we did it several times, my wife also accompanied us on a couple of occasions, and we loved speaking with her, and we loved seeing her fervency of spirit. And the one thing that she ached about more than anything else was the inability to be in a place like this where you are right now worshiping together. And one of the things I remember because of her poor eyesight was that she had a computer screen that would magnify the words of the screen to such a high level that there were only a few sentences that could be projected on such a screen because she had to get so close to the words to read them. And I remember also she said two things that sort of marked me forever, and one of those was, I want to thank you for the taped messages because I listen to the sermons every week. And then she said, and I want you to know that I pray for you and I pray for your family members and all of your children by name every single day. And I thought probably heaven will only be able to... um, add up and categorize the amount of blessing on a pastor's ministry for those who are behind such ministry through their prayers. The the effectiveness of their ministry, the opportunity for their ministry to go out far and wide, whether it's taped messages, whether it's the opportunity to visit the saints, whatever it is. And I've seen so many people, especially physically, who are unable to come to worship and how they long for those days when they were there with others, worshiping the Lord. I don't know exactly what the background is for this particular psalmist in Psalm 42, but I I recognize the heartache because for some reason, this particular psalmist is somehow not able to be in corporate worship. It could be that Israel is under attack from the enemy. He certainly alludes to the idea of an enemy in his life or enemies. And somehow and in some way, he is so caught up in a downcast countenance that somehow he's not able to be with the throng in the procession of worship. Some extended season has eclipsed his ability to be worshiping together with the saints. You know, there are people who assume that they can worship God all by themselves and they can do it regularly and they can do it without anyone else. And of course, it's true that you can worship God on your own for at least some kind of limited amount of time, but it's actually not supposed to be that way in God's economy. Worship is to be a corporate worship. In the end, It's supposed to be the people of God coming together as a force of those who are worshiping God and praising God and hearing God's Word. And this is precisely what the psalmist is grappling with here in Psalm 42, his inability to be with the saints in corporate worship. If we were to outline Psalm 42, it certainly seems to me to have two interweaving aspects to it with a lament, whatever that lament is in the particular section of the psalm where the psalmist isn't able to worship God as he otherwise desires. And then there's a verse where every time the lament is gone, the verse pops up hope in God. It speaks of a a ray of hope regarding the opportunity to be able to worship God in the way that the psalmist sincerely desires. And whoever this is, a part possibly, of course, of the sons of Korah, not all of them, but someone in their band, someone in their number 
who is responsible for this psalm and several psalms thereafter. And this particular lament psalm of Psalm 42 is designed for both severe honesty and godly hope. Transparent honesty and a wonderful godly hope. Let me show you what I mean. For instance, look at verses 1 through 4. Psalm 42, verses 1 through 4. Let's call that my soul's desire for God. My soul's desire for God. As a deer pants for flowing streams, rushing waters, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival." psalmist begins in verse 1 by expressing those very famous desires. In fact, we're going to sing a song that is right along the lines of Psalm 42.1 as we close our service tonight. And that's a very, very famous chorus, and it has come to us from Psalm 42.1. And as the psalm will go on to show, worship with the people of God in the temple is what this psalmist is talking about. He likens his thirst for God and God's Word to a deer who pants after the flowing streams. And in that same way, the psalmist's soul pants after the living God. Do you see that in verse 2? My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. He says, when shall I come and appear before God? That is, appearing before God in the temple coming with God's people to praise their God. Just as the summer heat has so parched the deer and his body, so the spiritual life of the worshiper is so parched until the living God pours out nourishment upon their hearts. Have you ever had that parched sense when you haven't read God's Word for a good long time? And you know, spiritually speaking, things have not gone well. You know you ought to read the Bible. You know you ought to avail yourselves of Holy Scripture. But it seems as though the more you stay away from the Bible, the more you are away from God. You know, as one person said it, a dusty Bible leads to a dirty life. And you find, as I do, that if I don't avail myself of God's Word, especially God's truth, every single day I find myself with my attitudes and my responses to people so much more uglier, so much more of a rant, so much more of a disappointment, so much more of an attitude that says, I want what I want. And as soon as I return to God's Word and the conviction is there and the nourishment comes, and the spiritual solvency of God breathing His Word back into my life allows the richness of spiritual refreshment that's second to none. Second to none. Look at verse 3. The psalmist speaks of his continual tears. Continual tears. Especially due to what we might call spiritual naysayers who seems so perpetually to remind this dear believer that his God is nowhere to be found. And when you're so passionate about your God and you aren't able to worship Him in the way that He prescribes, and in addition, you have your enemies screaming their invectives against you and your God, this can be a crushing defeat. This may be some kind of scenario where the worshiper is maybe... uh, on a pilgrim journey back to Jerusalem. And of course, you go up to Jerusalem because of its high elevation. 
and somehow, and maybe in some sense, the enemy is keeping them from Jerusalem. And he longs to be with God's people, and he longs to be there with the throng that he talks about in verse 4. He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng, with fellow worshipers. You know, there were uh, at least three times that those Jews were called upon to go back to Jerusalem, uh, Jerusalem for their festivals, for their feasts, right? And because at times with the enemy marauders, they were not always able to go. And so he's thinking back to that and he says, I remember as I pour out my soul how I would go with the throng. And even this particular psalmist says, and lead them in procession to the house of God. And in what way? With glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. I mean, you could just see in the words, his, his powerlessness not to be able to be there. And maybe at the enemy's hand. He details his remembrance of past worship, the throng that I would lead, and maybe he was the song leader because he says, I was leading them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise. He was the worship leader, maybe. And he was calling upon these pilgrims as they, mount, they marched to Jerusalem during these feasts and festival days, and they were happy, and they had holy times with shouts and songs of praise and worship. And there's always those critics, always those naysayers. And they certainly say to this particular psalmist in the latter part of verse 3, where is your God? You mean that may be an implicit kind of naysaying that says something like this. Look, if that's what you're commanded to do, to be going to Jerusalem at certain times of the year, and you're now not going, what kind of believer are you? Where is your God? I thought you were committed to Him. You say you want to pour out your soul. You're remembering back to the time that you were worshiping God. What about now? And you know, that's the ache of the soul of some people, as I said in the beginning, who physically can't go. They can't be there. I've known through pastoral ministry a couple decades now where people have been so physically unable and so hurting that I've been able with other elders to go and present to them the Lord's Supper. We have a little bitty box that has just a couple of cups and a little compartment to hold the bread. And I go with that little box and my Bible, and you would think I was, pardon the reference, Santa Claus, bringing this gift to those who long to have the fellowship of the Lord's Supper with God's people. And they are like a kid in a candy store because they want so desperately to be a part of us. You know, I made reference to Bill and Peggy Barber last Lord's Day and how these folks are in their late 90s and they're trying to determine how we can come to Bethany Church even when we give up our car to our daughter and aren't able to drive anymore. And they're... They're fretting because they want to be able to continue to come to this church and to enjoy the fellowship of God's people. I hope that that is my heart attitude when I come to be 97 years old. I I hope that's you. I hope that's me. And there's something that's blocking this psalmist from being in the house of God. That's why he's panting. That's why his Soul is thirsting for God, for the living God. That's why he has tears which have been his food day and night. That means always. And then he has on top of the pain and the sorrow of not being able to be with God's people, those naysayers who are saying to him, as much as his food of tears is day and night, they say all the day long, where is your God? So as much as, as he's hoping 
to be with God's people, they're challenging him when he's not. What's the answer? What's, what's the answer? Right out of that lament of four verses comes verse 5. Verse 5. And here's what he says. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Here's his answer, friends. Hope in God. Hope in God. For I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. I don't think he means when he says, for I shall again praise Him, that on my own, as an individual, even if I never am able to get back to Jerusalem, even if I'm never able to get back with the people of God to worshiping Him, I shall again praise Him. I think he's saying hope in God because God's going to somehow provide the way for all of us to be together again. That's his hope. And notice what he does. He counsels himself. You know, sometimes... It's a wonderful thing to receive counsel from other people about what you and I are struggling with. I say sometimes because sometimes you don't always get the right counsel. But when you do get the right counsel, it helps. But you know there's nothing like the counsel that you and I ought to receive from little old us. From ourselves. From what we already know to be true. All of the truth that God has poured into our lives for all the times we have been able to go into the throng, the procession, those who are going into God's house to worship in God's way, all that truth that's been poured into us. And I think what's happening here is the psalmist is saying, all of that truth, now that I'm not able to be with the people of God, is coming back to me. And what I'm doing is that while I'm having a lament of soul... I'm reminding myself right in the moment that I'm to hope in the God of my salvation. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? And then the immediate counsel that comes from God's Word back to the heart of this psalmist and then through his lips to us, he says this, hope in God. Hope in God. By the way, Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher in, in England of yesteryear, has said about this psalm and about counsel in general, and I think he's absolutely right on. Do you know the difference between listening to yourself and talking to yourself? There's a big difference. There's a big difference. Sometimes when I'm listening to self, the counsel is not good. The worry that was spoken of earlier, the despair, the wondering, the sleepless nights, the gripping fear, those sometimes come, those kinds of days and nights, because I am unfortunately listening to my fears. I think they're going to overwhelm me. I think they're going to overtake me. The anxiety is too much for me to bear. And what this psalmist is modeling for us, and Lloyd-Jones is right, do not listen to yourself. Talk to yourself. Tell self how things ought to be. Tell yourself, ask yourself, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why do you have turmoil within yourself? And then tell yourself these words, hope in God. Hope in God. This is what the psalmist is doing. He's working hard to speak to his own soul, to teach his own soul, to reteach himself, to recounsel for himself what he knows to be true. What does he teach his soul? To hope in God. God will yet give me, he will give us the opportunity to worship together again. And I know someone's going to immediately say, but wait a minute, what if the enemies overtake them? What if the enemies slaughter them? Here's the answer, hope in God, and guess what? If you die and go be with the Lord, you're going to be a part of the hallelujah chorus. 
So any way it goes, you're going to be worshiping with God's people. Either in the here or the hereafter. Teach yourself the truth about God. Don't allow yourself to be spoken to even by your own fears. And by the way, do you see that phrase in verse 5, my salvation and my God? In my Bible, it even has and my God, that portion, starting verse 6. That's because there's, there's a little bit of a question about the Hebrew text here and exactly what is being said. Literally, the phrase is this, the salvation of His face. That's the literal rendering of the first portion of that Hebrew text, and it's translated here in the ESV, my salvation and my God. What's he saying? Well, if my hope is in God, then my salvation is in God. I know that I will be delivered. I know that God will protect me. I know that God has my back. I know that God will keep me for himself. And what he's tantamount saying in verse 5 is, trust God. Trust God. Believe in God. Turn over in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. And let's remind ourselves as Christian people what it means to hope in God and to have our trust and our faith in God. Do you remember Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1? This is the very definition of faith. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. That's that's very much what the psalmist in Psalm 42 is talking about when he says, hope in God. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, for by this hoped for conviction, this assurance of things hoped for, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And then he begins to talk about Abel, and he begins to talk about Enoch. And then he says in verse 6, And without faith, it is impossible to please him, that is, please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. When you talk to your soul, and when you're honest enough with yourself to ask your soul why your soul is downcast, then tell your soul that the only way to uplift the downcast soul is to hope in God. I know it sounds like a trite kind of response, but it really isn't. It's a, it's a command. Hope in God. Continually and consistently and persistently hope in God. Well, what does that hope look like? Well, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God, who would ever be God's friend, you must believe that God exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. And do you know in 2 Corinthians, you might turn there as well, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the, the very words that we're talking about in the sense of counseling ourselves, here's what Paul the Apostle tells us to do in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 3. You want to know what you and I are supposed to do as we counsel ourselves, as we teach ourselves, as we continue to slay the wrong thoughts? that we have in our souls at times that make us downcast. Here's what we're supposed to do, spiritually speaking. Chapter 10, 2 Corinthians, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, that means though we're walking around in our human bodies, this uh, earthly tent that we have, we are not waging war according to the flesh. In other words, we don't fight spiritual battles with carnal weaponry. That's what he's saying there. 
Verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare, this spiritual battle, the battle not to be downcast in our soul, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, they're not carnal, but have divine power to do what? To destroy strongholds. What kind of strongholds? What's what's he referring to? Verse 5, arguments. We destroy arguments. Things against God. Every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. I say it like this. Every lofty opinion raised against what is true about God. Arguments against what is true about God. And they're legion in our world, aren't they? So many, so many sentences, so many paragraphs, so much philosophy that are specifically raised up by the devil himself against what is true about God, to to go the opposite direction about what is true of God, to actually believe the lie, as Romans 1 says. And here's what we're to do in verse 5, take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's what we have to do when we talk to our own souls. We don't just talk to other believers. We should do that. But we don't merely talk to them. We also talk to our own souls and we teach our souls and we say to our souls hope in God hope in God why is my soul in such turmoil hope in God for I shall again praise him he is my salvation he is my God hope in him believe that he exists and believe that he rewards those who seek him and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ here's what you have in Psalm 42 you have this lament And then you have the psalmist, in a sense, trying to right himself. Trying to say, hope in God. Don't believe the lie of what I've just described and and what I'm lamenting about. And he does it again. Right after he says, hope in God, and this is characteristic of so many of us, if not all of us in the Christian life, we, we go from this lament and then we encourage our souls by talking right to the problem of our thinking, and we want to take those thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ, and, and we're, we're doing pretty good, and we've counseled our soul, and everything seems to be so good for the moment, and then we go right back into a lament. I mean, it's just like us as Christians, isn't it? And verses 6 and 7 say that very thing. Look at verses 6 and 7 of Psalm 42. He says, here's what's happening. My soul is cast down within me. Now, if you're like me, you you read that and you say, well, I just thought you said hope in God. I thought you just said that God is your salvation, that He's your God. Yes, I did, but the waves keep hitting me. The waves of doubt. The waves of fear. The unknown Why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in God. Yes, I do. I want to. I am. And then I lay in my bed again. And then I start thinking again. And I'm thinking of the things that I shouldn't be thinking, but that I'm thinking. And and I know what to do, but my soul is cast down within me again. So what does he do? He says, therefore, I, I remember you. And notice he said the very same thing in verse 4. These things I remember. And so he's trying to remember again. He's trying to bring into his remembrance this God from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. And so he's trying to remember that, in a sense, you could say spiritually, God is this high mountain. And, and, and this God, who is higher than I, will, will be able to protect me and shield me from this torrent of fears. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I, I remember you. And then he goes from the highest mountain, according to verse 7, uh, to the lowest depths of the sea. And he says in verse 7, deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. So whether, whether you're down and out by these downcast fears 
and, and, and whether you're trying to look up to see the refuge of God, that He's going to protect you in the cleft of the rock, or whether you think the waves are washing over me in such a torrent that it's going to completely overwhelm me. Notice this, verse 8. Here's, here's this next verse right after he comes out of a, another battle with his soul. And he says in verse 8, By day, the Lord com- commands His steadfast love, and at night His song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. And there he, there he does it again. He's, he's fighting. He's, he's fighting against these fears. He's fighting against these torrents of doubt. He's, he's fighting against it. And he says, by day, the Lord commands His steadfast love. And he takes this day-night imagery and he says, during the day, I'm going to focus my mind and my heart on the Lord's steadfast love. And by night, I'm going to sing a song. Maybe he's singing Psalm 42. Maybe as he's writing it, he's singing it to God. So by day, I'm going to concentrate on his steadfast love. And by night, I'm going to sing a song. It's going to be my prayer to the God of my life. And that's what we have to do. I mean, what can be your hope in the desire to worship God even in the midst of these lingering doubts? Here's the answer. Yahweh and His steadfast love. That particular phrase, steadfast love, that is one of the rich words in all of the Hebrew Old Testament. It's the word hesed. Hesed. And it's the covenant love of God. In fact, this word is so pregnant with meaning that no one phrase captures every aspect of this word. Translators have failed through the ages to be able to capture this particular word, hesed, with just one phrase that's used throughout the Old Testament. They can't do it. Covenant love, loyal love, steadfast love, Faithful love, the continual regard of your covenant Lord, whatever or however it's translated, the psalmist says, here's what I've got to do. The Lord commands His steadfast love and He commands it to wash over me. When I've got a a torrent of doubts in my life that I think is going to overwhelm me, then I think of the other kind of overwhelming, and it's the overwhelming love of God. I tell you what, in some of the most grave dangers and the depths of soul in my life have been marvelously answered by remembering the steadfast love of the Lord. When I think there is not something that could be worse that's happening to me in my life, by day, I want to remember the command of the Lord that He will love me forever. The command of God to bring His steadfast love for me always and forever in my life. And when those night terrors come upon you, sing a song. Maybe Psalm 42. Sing a song which becomes your prayer to God, the God of your life. And as soon as the psalmist does it, what happens? Verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? And you say, is this the schizophrenic psalmist? Is this the guy who who seems to be going well and then in a moment is shattered? No. He's just a normal believer. He's just like all of us. I mean, we're, we're doing well. And the tendency is for us as Christians, we're doing well in this sense. I'm being so totally blessed. Everything's going my way. 
I see all of this blessing from God and all of these things are, are happening that life couldn't be better. And then as soon as the dark clouds come upon me, something that doesn't look like a blessing or something that really truly isn't a blessing, what do I do? My soul is immediately cast down. And that's, that's him. I mean, how could, a, how could a man say that God loves me with his everlasting covenant love and he puts a song in my heart which is none other than a prayer to the God of my life and then turn around in the very next instant, say to this God, his rock, why have you forgotten me? Well, here's something that encourages me. He does say in verse 9 that God is my rock. He does say that. And doesn't that, doesn't that song we sing in times like these, Jesus is my solid rock? I mean, I know that God is my rock. I know that truth in my head. But when circumstances don't seem to go my way, and when I think those blessings have all dried up, and the challenges are coming, and they're slapping me across the face from both sides, then I'm not as prone to say, God, you're protecting me. Because that's what the word rock is, right? Protection, security, safety. And he says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? That's a contradiction. If you're saying that God is your rock, you're saying he is going to protect me. He is going to keep me safe. So why would you then have to say, why have you forgotten me? But he does. And so do we. And then he says, why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? I know God's in charge. I know His sovereignty rules over all. I know that God is going to take up my cause. But he's constantly, this psalmist, pelted, taunted with the repeated question, where's your God? What's He doing? Why isn't He coming after you? Why isn't He helping you? Why aren't you trusting in Him? And by the, word, that, by the way, that word oppression, because of the oppression of the enemy, that's a very serious word. Oppression. It's, it's, it's the idea of this dark, foreboding pressure that's coming upon a person, which then at times motivates that person, or it could be allowed to motivate a person, to ask the question, where's God? Where's God? I mean, even my enemies are asking the question, where is your God? And sometimes I hear the, the siren sounds of Satan and I listen more to that than I listen to what God tells me. He says hope in God. He says that in verse 5. Hope in God. He says that the Lord commands His steadfast love and it's my experience and at night His song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life and no sooner does that come into the consciousness of my mind to encourage me, the enemies are after me again. And I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? And isn't that, by the way, precisely what Jesus said on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The challenge of anyone's life is to listen more to God than to the enemy. That's the challenge of life. Am I going to listen to my God? Am I going to listen to His purposes for me, the God of my life, the one who loves me, the one who is my rock, or am I going to listen to the oppression and mounting pressure of my enemy. It's, it's gotten so bad, he says in verse 10, as with a deadly wound in my bones. Literally, I have a breaking in my bones. It's as though my bones inside me are absolutely shattering. My adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? It's almost a, a taunt that's repeated so often you start to believe it. 
Where is your God? Where is your God? Where is your God? And then it becomes louder and louder and louder. And all of us have had that experience at some point in our lives. Where is God? And then you say, yeah, 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 yeah. like where is He? And then you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Verse 11 and finally. Why are you cast down, O my soul? He's he's going back to teaching himself, talking to himself, counseling himself. And why are you in turmoil within me? And then what's that next line? Hope in God. Hope in God. For I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. And you know that because there is no superscription in Psalm 43. A lot of commentators believe that Psalms 42 and 43 go together as one psalm. And you know there's merit to that because look at what the end of Psalm 43 says, verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. One, two, three. And you know, for us, I dare say it's not going to be one, two, three, the amount of times we have to remind ourselves to hope in God and to say, I've got to get to praising Him again. But it's going to be not three, but 303 and 3,003. Because we all do it, myself included, when things all seem to be hunky-dory. We're all about God is good and God is wonderful and God is great and things are... Things couldn't be going any better. And then almost the moment that the naysaying crowd says, what about this and what about that and where is your God? And and Satan begins to, to ply his trade of the question marks of the Christian life and you and I might then buy the line. We shouldn't, but we do. And almost as soon as we say hope in God, we're saying, where is he? He's my rock and he's not protecting me. He's my salvation, and I'm unsure if I'm going to be delivered. And what we have to do, if it's three times or 3,000 times, is remind ourselves again and again and again, hope in God. I'm going to be able to praise Him again with the saints. That's what I want. That's what I long for, because He's my salvation and my God. You know what I hear in this? When I read this psalm and study for tonight, I thought of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 11. The end of that chapter, He says this, Come to Me, Jesus speaking, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you, and that yoke is the idea of being yoked to the kind of animal next to you for the hard work. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Hope in God, my friends. He's your salvation, your rock, and your God. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for challenging all of us, myself included, that when those dark days come, and they will, and they have, and they do, they tempt us, they taunt us to wonder about where you are. They ask us, they question us, they pelt us. Where's your God? Where's He now? Why isn't He by your side? Why isn't He doing what you want Him to do? Well, here's our answer. Satan, his hosts, other naysayers of the human kind, 
Hope in God. Hope in God. Just like this psalm says, hope in God, for I will yet again praise Him, my salvation and my God. And just like that song we sang earlier, in times like these, in times like these, you need a Savior. In times like these, you need an anchor. Be very sure, be very sure, your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. And like the Apostle Paul said, this rock is Jesus, the Christ. Father, when we teach ourselves, tell ourselves, preach to ourselves, counsel ourselves that we're to hope in you, we're sincere. We say it and we mean it. And yet, like the psalmist, as soon as we say it, even with sincerity, another wave of doubt rolls over. Another consequence of fear seems to put us under. And we don't see the mountains as high as they are as a safety, and we don't see the deeps as anything other than overwhelming us. And then we have to do what Your Word says. Have faith. Hope in God. Trust in Him. See His steadfast love, the steadfast love of the Lord. See that it never ceases. See that Your mercies never come to an end. Thank You for Your covenant love. And in those night watches, when we're laying on our bed and the fears and the doubts are almost undoing us, it seems. Hope in God. Ask God to give you more days with the saints. To receive encouragement in corporate worship. To say to God, I hope in you. I believe in you. And whether I sing with the saints below or I'm with them above, we will yet again praise you, our hoped-for God. We praise you in His name, the name of Jesus Christ, the name which is above every name. Amen.